Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to another edition of the Age of Infinite. Now, when you think about it, we hear all these terminologies being tossed out. We're entering the fourth industrial revolution. No, that's not the future. The future is the Age of Infinite, infinite possibilities, infinite resources. And we're brought to you by the Project Moon Hut Foundation, where we're looking to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut. And if you are, I'm going to say because we have a German on the line, Moon Hut doesn't translate as well as it should. It's a Moon Hut, like a building on the moon, through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem, then to use the endeavors, the paradigm shifting, the innovations, and turn them back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. We're inclusive of so much. And today we have an, um, an awesome guest on the line who's going to be talking about, or we're going to be exploring, Get this, this is an amazing title. Space conditions make all creatures age extremely fast. Oh my God, what a topic. And uh, with us is Sonia, and I'm gonna try to say this, Schlepker. Did I say it okay? Fantastic, David. <laughs> so welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Sonia is a scientific co-founder of a company called Sonia Biotechnology. Her background, a professor of surgery. She founded a transplant and stem cell immunobiology lab she, uh, at Stanford. She's an adjunct professor at UCSF, but as everybody knows, we don't go into all that. There's more. You can find out. You can look her up. The big thing is we're going to get started. So, Sonia... You have some bullet points from me. You got an outline? I do, David. Okay. Can I have them, please? Okay. The first one. A living organism is as old as its stem cells. Stem cells. Okay. Next. The next one. At the heart of resilience is our ability to adapt. The heart of what was the word? Resilience. Resilience. Okay. Is our ability to adapt. Okay. Next. Spaceflight as a model for aging. Um, the next one is the Kelly twins. Is Scott Kelly's immunological fingerprint altered? Ah, cool. Next. That is the last one, the fifth. Why is space research important when we have restricted funds here on Earth? When we have... I'm right, I'm right, yeah, well, yeah I, I'm joking because they, when they get long, they get long. Why is space research important when we have um, restricted funds? Here restricted on funds. Okay. So teach me something. Let's start with the first one. Living organisms as old as the stem cells. I'm, okay. I'm all yours. So David, I thought I go a little bit uh, into what are stem cells, just a little bit to have a definition about it that we have common ground, what we are talking about when I think about stem cells and then how they really heal our body and why is it important for the space flight overall. So the definition, what are stem cells is um, you find um, in humanity four different kinds of stem cells. So one are the embryonic stem cells that is doing our embryonic development. That's not where I will go. Um, a second kind of stem cell are induced pluripotent stem cells or iPSCs. That's when we generate those stem cells out of our own body, own somatic cells. That's also not where I will go. 
I would like to focus on the adult stem cells. Those are the stem cells we have in our body when we are grown-ups. And I want to um, talk a little bit about how those stem cells regenerate our body, what they do during aging, and why this is affected in space flight. And also, what does it mean for Earth, for example, if uh, we have this Moon-Earth uh, collaboration, how would that affect our stem cells? And the fourth population, but I will not go into that, are the cord blood stem cells, just to have the stem cell definition complete. Okay, so the uh, the last one, that, mm -hmm. and what was that called again? You said the cord blood uh, stem cells. So and what are those? Yeah, just so for clarity. So this is a certain stem cell population um, when we are born in our cord blood or cord line. Um, they are a little bit distinguished from the stem cells we have in our bodies when we are grown up because they are basically more plastic. Um, they have more um, the un, um, unformed or undifferentiated phenotype. But I won't go into them because as soon as you are born, uh, we are losing those um, stem cells. Now, I don't know. Do you have on a messenger system? Because we're hearing a beep, beep, beep. I don't know if that's you or me. Let me check if that's in my background. Uh, I'm, I'm messaging. So I hear bling, bling, bling. So let me see. So I turned everything off. I apologize. That's okay. No, 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 no. I'm, that's fine. I just, I didn't hear what type of stem cell it was because of the sound. So I think that was what happened. So uh, I, I don't know. I think I shared with you that my background is organic chemistry, physics, because I was a biology major. I, we never went into in school, this type of thinking when growing up. So that's why I wanted, it's great that you gave them. Awesome, thank you. Okay. So let's focus on our stem cells in our body when we are grown-ups, um, because um, those stem cells are a population that can help us to heal our body and regenerate. But of course, that is not infinity. So um, for example, we cannot heal all of our body injuries. I mean, that would be fantastic. Then we would live forever. But uh, for example, for wound healing, right? You cut yourself and then the wound is healing. You have, for example, a um, stem cell population called mesenchymal stroma cells. So they help um, basically um, healing your wound. That is something I'm thinking a lot about it because in space, if this stem cell population is affected and the astronauts or on, on moon, in the moon hut, um, we are cutting ourselves, that would mean that we are not able to heal that wound or maybe we heal it delayed. And that has implications on health. Uh, so the goal is here really uh, getting a deep understanding what is happening, what can we do to make that better, to allow us um, going on long duration space flights, to allow us to live on the moon or on Mars. Um, so those are the things I'm thinking about um, when I think about stem cells and space flight. Do, and I, I might be jumping ahead, but that's okay. Uh, today, are there, do, do we have enough knowledge about this, the implications of these wound healing 
cells to know if they are being damaged in low earth orbit are they being damaged when they through the van allen belt or are they do we have enough knowledge of that or are we basically working off a low earth orbit with the information we have so i think the clear answer david is we don't have enough knowledge that's why it is so important to get more knowledge i mean we we are gathering information but it is the tip of an iceberg so that's why it is so important to support and do those um, biomedical studies in space to get that understanding also to help then on earth um, patients with impaired wound healing for example so it is not only that we are interested in allowing us to to go on long-term duration space flight uh, missions we also want and need to learn about earth and how and diseases and changes in normal physiology can be treated or prevented on Earth. So when you study this, do you study it uh, from, in a lot of your thinking, I'm, this is a general term, are you a general thinking, do you study it as a space phenomenon and you want to bring it to Earth? Or do you study it as an Earth phenomenon that you've expanded to space? That's a great question. So we are studying it in space, trying to understand what's going on and then bringing that knowledge to Earth. And the reason for that, David, is that um, this impaired wound healing occurs actually in space. So you, it's a model for us to understand what's going on with those stem cells. And uh, whatever we learn there, we then adapt to Earth. You cannot really study this on earth because we do have clarity so the because of the condition in space we have a uh, an easier mechanism or a uh, subjects that go mm -hmm. through this and it allows us to be able to isolate it and or more rapidly be able to identify the condition so therefore, it's easier than working on the Earth-based. It so, is. Okay. That's correct. Okay. Cool. Yeah, so um, if it's okay, I would like to dig a little bit deeper to shed some light on what's really happening with those stem cells in space flight and why is, it is so important um, to understand it also here on Earth. No, I'd love, love that. I want to know more about what's happening here because this topic is just such a huge topic that if we're aging rapidly in space and we don't solve that going on a long-term mission we, we either have to solve it or we end up with people aging and having severe consequences over time that have to be addressed in terms of medical supplies or new technology developed to be able to alter that condition yeah and that is actually a point I want to address a little bit later, David. Okay. I'm thinking, how much do we really want to prevent changes in our body, right? Because we still need to adapt. Spaceflight is, um, those are different conditions for our physiology, for our body. So um, how far can we go or do we want to go to prevent certain things? Um, but I will address that a little bit um, later when we talk about um, our ability to adapt um, to the space flight conditions. Perfect. And for, yeah, for the stem cells, David, what we are really interested in is um, the stem cell aging is actually 
regulated or impaired by our immune cells. So if you think about our body, um, we have immune cells to fight infection, to distinguish between ourselves and foreign tissue or cells. And this immune um, defense is very important for us to survive on Earth. However, um, we, this immune system can age. And uh, when I talk about aging uh, in that context, I'm not thinking about an aged person 90 years old. I'm talking about a person who has aged immune cells. And that can be even a young person, which is, I think, a very important point that we understand that the aging of the immune system is not necessarily depending on your age. It depends on your immune cells, how often they were challenged, for example, with viral infections. And um, one example here, David, is when we do have a CMV infection. CMV is um, an herpes virus. Um, and I think 60% um, of the population is CMV positive. This virus stays in our body. We call it uh, latent. Um, latent infection. Mm -hmm. And um, this virus is a stimulus to our immune cells, especially to immune cells called T cells. So those T cells, they are primed to look for virus loaded infected cells and fight them and clear them from the body. And if you have now this CMV in your body, you have the risk that your immune system ages faster. It doesn't mean that everyone who has the CMV virus uh, gets an aged immune system. So all you're saying is that because the body is constantly having to fight the virus, it, it ages, the, the immune system ages, correct? Yeah. So th there's something, a foreign, a foreign body always there, so it's always on a heightened state of repair and attack. So like running out of, in a military, running out of supplies or running out of people. So can you, uh, my mind is racing and saying, what does an aged immune system look like? Like, what does that, what does that mean? I, I see oh, uh, young cells are kind of strong and virile and they pick up weights and old ones use canes, but that's not the way it's happening. So what does an, an aged immune system look like or or how do you define it actually david i like that because that's really on a high level what is happening so your young <laughs> immune system <laughs> okay let me, let me explain because um, i think it was a really good uh, way to see it so when when you're young when you're born you have a lot of naive t-cells meaning those t-cells haven't seen anything before they can react to any antigen to any viral infection and what they do is they see that antigen and then they memorize it. That's why we call them memory T cells. So they memorize. And if you have the same infection again, they come back even stronger and faster to fight that infection. So I think that's a very interesting and fascinating um, um, aspect of our immune system. They, they have a memory. They have a memory of the combat Yes. So that when they have the experience again, they know how to attack it because they've developed uh, skill sets. Or in this case, they've developed either some type of uh, mechanism that can prevent that from happening or, or to stop it. Okay. Yeah, that's correct. And 
then in that stage, those are not naive T cells anymore, right? Because they are now trained, they're educated. And um, they, there is a name out there, we call them central memory or effector memory T cells. It just means they have seen the antigen, they are educated and they are able to fight faster and even um, proliferate faster. So you get even more T cells to fight um, in a very short time. When they, when they replicate, do they replicate at the same age with the exact same memory? Yes, they can do that. They can divide and yes, and have the same memory. And you can, we can analyze that in the blood because they do have a certain molecule expression or meaning like a fingerprint on the surface that you can distinguish and identify and see, oh, that patient does have a lot of memory T cells or a lot of naive. So there are ways to distinguish those cell populations. And if you know age, um, these memory T cells, they become exhausted or senescent. So they become very unplastic. Um, we call them Temwa cells. So they are effector memory RA positive cells. That What that means is only they have a surface molecule, the CD45 RA on their surface. And so we know all oh, those are end differentiated, old and exhausted T cells. And they have um, a very poor ability to proliferate. However, they are killers. They can kill fast. They have a strong effector activity. They release cytokines. And that is not always a good thing because if you imagine those cells are everywhere in your body, they're in contact with all of your organs. They're in contact with all the stem cell niches we have in our body that can be in the bone marrow, that can be in the vasculature, the um, stem cells, the progenitors from our vessels. So they're in contact with all of those stem cells. And what happened now is, David, that those old immune cells, they release cytokines or signals that make stem cells impaired in their behavior and function. So a stem cell, the job in our body is to heal and to regenerate. For example, in wound healing, they have to proliferate and cover the wound and build new tissue. If you have now those old exhausted T cells, the immune cells in your body, that doesn't work anymore. They affect with all the signals that the T cells are releasing, they affect your stem cell niche. And um, they impair your healing, your capacity to heal and regenerate your body. So uh, let me get the, please clarify this for me. We are born with a number of T cells. Some mm -hmm. have more than others, but there's, there's probably challenges if you don't have enough and challenges if you have too little, but let's assume that you're born with X, which is a good number. Mm -hmm. During your time, the cell learns how to be able to fight certain types of diseases. So they become more specialized in their capacity to be able to arm. They can duplicate, they can replicate and pass on that mirror. And then that causes issues, for example, for healing. My question then comes back to, does, do the T cells die and are new T cells uh, created that are young? Yeah, 
that would be actually very nice if that would happen. <laughs> then we we would um, yeah rewind aging, but that is unfortunately um, not what usually happens. So usually, your naive young T cell population is shrinking, and your old exhausted um, signal releasing um, population is increasing. Um, that is usually what we see. And if you do have an stimulus in your body, like on CMV virus, you create those old T cells all the time because it's always there. So they, they exhaust, they become old. And that can happen when you are even in your 30s, just as, a, as an example. So I, the way I'm picturing it is, let's say I have 100 T cells when I start my life. And they start moving along and they become, there's 25 become of each different types of classification to solve issues in my body. And now they become T, T one year or 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then there's now 25, 25, 25, and 25. But when they duplicate, they duplicate with that aging. So now you've got 50, 50, 50, 50. You've got 200 cells that are old with a certain loss of memory or a loss of uh, flexibility, and it continues to go on so that you end up with just aging and aging, aging populations, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And at the same time, the young population is shrinking because of course, you have only a certain compartment in your body, right? So you basically, you stick with your 100% T cells. Mm -hmm. The it's a population shift. That ah, okay. So you maintain the hundred, but as a percentage of those that disappear and whatever is regenerated, they yeah. become a larger proportion of the overall 100%. Yeah, correct. How many T cells does a human body have? Oh, so the T cell population itself, it's really hard because we distinguish so many different ones. Um, so um, you start with your whole overall immune cells, you start with uh, cytotoxic T cells, I think around 15% of your immune cells um, okay. are, or leukocytes are um, the T cell population up to, can go to 45%. So it, it varies, as you said, from human to human a little bit. And uh, we do have also good T cells. This is not the only T cell population, but this is the T cell population giving us trouble with our ab ability to heal ourselves. Mm -hmm. And why that is important for space flight, David, is when you put those T cells into microgravity, within 72 hours, you can um, increase that old T cell population from 10% to almost 70%. So wow. Yeah, it's scary. So just that's, I don't know if you have this answer. It, could it be that the space flight with the G-forces and the challenges of getting into orbit be the cause of that? Or is it the microgravity and being in space that causes that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm not sure if anyone knows exactly the answer. What we have seen is when you imitate microgravity on Earth with, um, for example, an, a machine that imitates the microgravity, you can see those changes in those T cells within 72 hours. 
Oh, wow. So, so you're actually, you're duplicating on an earth of microgravity. So I've got to believe there's even a, a, a you talked about the, this, the, the impact of any type of damage to the body. Well, G-force is damage to the body. So you've yeah. actually got a compounding impact of both microgravity and the transport. Correct. And when you see those changes in the T-cells happening, if you now put them together with stem cells, and I just go back to our example we had before the MSCs, the mesenchymal stroma cells, um, you put them together, now the mesenchymal stroma cells are not able to show or give you wound healing. It's not that they are completely um, prevented from wound healing. That's not what we have seen so far. It is a delay in wound healing. But that a cut, a cut that takes a long time to heal. A long time to heal, correct. Yes. And in your vessels, we also looked at vessel stem cells um, called endothelial progenitor cells. Mm -hmm. Those are not able to regenerate the vessel, the inner layer of the vessel anymore. And that can give you um, really trouble with thrombosis or stroke or my risk of myocardial infarction. It doesn't mean that you get it immediately, but it is a risk factor that happens in spaceflight conditions and that we have to think about. So there's a, there's a good, there is a good strategic position, a good tactical position to bring on young individuals with a young immune system at the current time to address space activity. Yeah, let me challenge that, David, because okay. when those cells can age quite fast, and it's not really related to your age, like if you're in your 20s or in your 50s, then that would mean that it doesn't really matter. Yeah, because you're going to 70%, which is ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. Okay. okay. And um, Earth, Earth studies have shown there are really nice um, studies from colleagues that if you have the T-cell population, it's called Temua cells. If you have an increase in those Temua cells and you have a bone fracture, for example, on Earth, and you have a significant increase in those Temua cells, you're not able to heal the bone fracture. And that even happens in young patients. So I saw an example uh, that patient was, I think, 25 years old. So that is what I mean with immunological aging. It's really all about the immune compartment and how it affects our body. Which, which asks to answer so many questions that we don't know about our own biology on Earth. Correct. Because you're, you're, if you see me, you couldn't do enough tests to be able to identify all the possible implications of yeah. one experience to be able yeah. to identify which is going to be more valuable than another. One, could, one person could have a stroke immediately, and the other person, which would look like they would have an issue, would only have an issue, for example, in, in muscular conditions. So you really can't identify yeah. the path that will happen for an individual, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And what I think spaceflight is really valuable, and we should um, do even more of those studies, is you can study those changes in space because they make your immune system age. But the really beauty of it is you can return those samples and you can understand if it is reversible. So that would help us on Earth to understand aging of the immune system, 
and not only trying to prevent it, but if we see patients with an aged immune system, trying to reverse it, are there any mechanisms, any pathways we could go into to reverse that immunological aging? And I think that is a very fascinating area of research um, that benefits from everything we are doing in spaceflight biology, spaceflight medicine. And I think it also ties into the shift in biological uh, research, which used to be, how do we fix the damage that has happened to the body? And mm -hmm. I think it's been about 10 years where, ago where you started to see more of a shift of we're not going to wait to the end. We're going to go earlier in the biological cycle and see if we can extend the life cycle of a body yeah. by altering some of the earlier conditions, which would move cancer out 10 years or 15 years or move any type of bodily damage that happens due to aging by extending it to another point in time. So it sounds like this is kind of a, uh, a connective, I'd say the word tissue, but a connective lane in terms of thinking. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's correct, David. Okay. So when we defined the title, David, I was, uh, and we said space condition makes all creatures age extremely fast. Um, in brackets, it should be related to the immune system. And then, of course, the consequences of our body. Okay. Wow. So the, the, the conditions themselves already, just, I, I don't know if we're still in number one. It sounds like we are. It sounds like that we really have, the minute we get into space, we are fighting a biological battle that we can't win as of now. That depends how you see it. Okay, um, well, I, <laughs> tell me another way, because what I just heard was a losing battle. <laughs> well, see, it's all about understanding problems. And as soon as you identify and understand it, I think there's always a way to solve it. I think that's what humanity showed. Um, we need to understand issues, define them. And then the easy thing is to fix them, I think, and to solve them. I think the harder part is to identifying where are the risks, what don't we know. This is the hard part. I think when you realize something like this exists, it's easier to tackle it and to identify ways to not make those T cells aging. So I, I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole because we could probably talk about this for a long time. How did we quickly, what was, how did we find out that this actually existed? I mean, was it a short story? Was it a simple, was it they go up, they come back, they did some blood tests, they went, wow. Or was it, they had to discover this? So that was, I think, a longer term discovery, David. So it started that um, the signal that those cells are releasing interferon gamma uh, was already measured in many astronauts, in mice, so it was known that something is off with the cytokine profile. And then um, there are now tissue chip studies. They look deeper into this issue and then really trying to understand who is it that releases that signal and what does it actually mean to stem cells, for example. So it was, it's a longer process. Um, basically, each scientist who is doing research in that area contributes a little puzzle piece to it. And I wouldn't say that we have the full picture yet. Um, but that's what all the space biology research is about, to add those puzzle pieces together and to get the whole story. And do we have, uh, uh, do we have existing or leftover 
tissue samples that go back all the way to Apollo 8 and the astronauts, I mean, the, the earlier days, do we have tissue samples still to be able to diagnose or experiment with? Um, for the Apollo mission, I'm not sure, David, but we had the scenario where we were interested in astronaut samples. And then if you write that um, with your scientific questions, you're able to get access to astronaut data and samples. So we did that in the past. Uh, we didn't ask for the Apollo, so I'm not sure. I mean, if there are samples stored, I'm sure you can get access um, if you ask for them. I just, uh, I just thought I don't know how far back we're actually looking because yeah. there was a data set that was created from one set of experiments, and now that we have new technology advances, we yeah. could see what did they conclude then, and now, oh my God, we didn't see that. That's the reason I was asking. Yeah. That's a good one. So I don't know um, if we have it from the Apollo mission. Another reason to go to the moon again, David. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> so do we have anything more on living organisms as old? Do we go on to number two with the heart as resilience? Go to the number two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the heart. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So the number two uh, really refers to uh, the capability of our body to adjust to space flight. And I mean that more in a physical way, but you can, of course, also have emotional adjustments and mental adjustments you have to do in space. And I just want to share one thought with you, and we discussed it a little bit earlier, um, how much should we really adapt in space flight? Are some of those um, mechanisms necessary for us to survive in space? And I think the cardiovascular system is one good example where we have identified a problem what happens in space flight but i'm not sure if we should solve it or if you need that adaption in space flight okay so um maybe i um start with what is happening with with the heart or with the cardiovascular system in microgravity you do have the unloading of your cardiovascular system what that means is usually you know, we have this gradient from the head to your feet, the um, hydrostatic gradient. In microgravity, that's completely um, not working anymore. It's an unloading environment, meaning you have a lot of volume of your blood going out to your head. And as example, your pressure in your head, the mean arterial pressure, increases from, I think it was 70 millimeter H she on, on earth and it goes up to 100. So there is this shift in your body fluids. So I think, so when you, uh, let me try to clarify that for the, uh, so that if someone do, doesn't grab that quickly, is that we have a certain amount of capacity in our heart to be able to pump blood or and circulate to our feet and to our body against gravity. Once you're in space, you no longer have that load that need to be able to pump at the same magnitude. And because our heart are, and because of the condition, the location proximity, you can answer that, we're, we're finding a disproportionate change to where the, uh, the pressure is being induced. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. And what that means, David, is our body tries to counteract that. Because you can imagine if you have now a lot of more volume in your head, that's not good for the arteries in your brain. 
um, you are, we are not made to have that high pressure in our hand. So we do have arteries, especially in our neck, the carotid artery, that is um, regulating the blood pressure in our brain. And what happens in spaceflight is now that that artery becomes stiff. It doesn't um, open as widely as it would on Earth. And that is really the adaption of the body trying to minimize blood flow to the brain, right? And counteract that new conditions you face when you're in space. And what that means is um, when you look into those arteries of the astronauts, they become thicker. So uh, you probably um, have seen those pictures where the astronauts, they are doing an um, ultrasound of their neck. So that's basically what they are measuring on those pictures. They measure how thick the wall of these arteries became. And those walls become quite thick to regulate, uh, to regulate uh, blood flow to your brain um, and to minimize damage um, to your brain, which would happen if your blood pressure in your brain. So it's a reactionary mechanism that our body's putting in place to be able to, yeah. to, to take the pressure off. That is correct. It's an, exactly, it's a reaction a mechanism. And the question here is now, we kind of understand how that mechanism works. Um, on the molecular basis, we understand, we identified a regulator um, that gets changed in space and how that happens, that the artery becomes stiff. Um, the cells in your artery become bigger. So you don't get more cells, but each cell becomes bigger. And what you can imagine if every cell, let's say it's three times bigger, the whole pipe, the whole artery gets of course stiffer. It's not able to react to blood pressure anymore. Mm -hmm. so, right. um, so we understand how that works. We have a molecule identified. We even have an idea how you treat that with a pharmacological drug so you could counteract it. And I think the interesting question now also for Murph is, do we really want to do that? Because in spaceflight conditions, it might be an adaption of our body to the new environment, which might be healthy for us. The reason why we see it as unhealthy is when the astronauts return to Earth, um, they get this phenomenon, it's called um, POI, it's a peripheral post-flight autostatic intolerance, POI. And um, when you see the pictures from the astronauts, coming out of the capsule, they wouldn't be able to stand up because of those pipes to your brain in the neck, the carotid arteries. They are stiffened. They can't regulate blood flow as well as they should. So astronauts become dizzy as soon as you're on Earth and all your blood volume goes to your feet again. I bet if you asked 100 space fanatics why are they carried out? Why are they nobody except, I mean, really scientific people? They'll know today, but nobody would answer. It was because in an altered body state, reacting to carotid arteries, getting thicker and cells getting three times larger, which causes the constriction or inability for the blood to flow in a regular condition. I bet you nobody would say that. 
and it's just one factor, of course. But it, but that's a that is huge. It's a, you mean it's a huge factor? Okay, it's yeah. One. I mean it, it's one, but I mean one. carotid artery and getting blood flow to your brain versus not being able to or the body. That's a huge. I would see that as a significant reason we're challenged for Earth and space based or Earth, Moon and Earth based traveling. Yeah, the question is David or not because so in space I've I feel but it's just a gut feel. I don't really have data I think not enough research is done in that area it looks like it's a protective and good mechanism so the the thing um, goes bad or, or is makes trouble maybe when you return back to earth and you have now um, the blood volume down to your feet and the artery all of a sudden can't regulate that and then you feel dizzy, you might faint. So the question is when we go to moon, the gravity is only 0.16 G. Um, is that now an issue on the moon or not? I don't know. And it's really hard to answer that question from Apollo because Apollo astronauts, they went to the moon and they came back. It was not that they were right. one year um, in space and then they would go to moon. So I don't know um, this poi or this thickening of that artery that takes time. I think it develops over six months or something like that. So it takes time to develop. So I'm not sure, is it now really an issue or not? And right, if so I, You're saying yeah. it's a, it could be just a biological reaction that is uh, I'm going to use the term that probably doesn't apply appropriately, but it's an organic, adaptive organic uh, uh, capability that allows yeah. us to be able to be, for example, in cold weather versus hot weather. This could be one of those built-in mechanisms we don't even realize that only is triggered when we're in these type of conditions, maybe high altitude versus bottom of the ocean. That is correct. Okay. Yes. Yes. So um, that's why I think this adaption in space, probably not all of our of the adaptions we undergo are bad. They are, they are made to protect our body. They're made for us to survive in those harsh conditions. So it's something I think we need to understand further. Um, is it really an issue? Should we really counteract? Or is it something good? Is it protective? So I, I'm... Uh, I don't want to go off this topic, because, but I'm going to bring up a topic that actually came up with a male first, and I don't want to be taken for being gender specific or having a, a question that that is being brought up because you're on the line. It's because your expertise is in heart and, and biological functions. Let's two questions, and you can answer them in any way you think, or they're possibly combined. We're talking about the uh, carotid artery going to the brain, so therefore there's a mechanism to slow that down. However, the rest of the body is not getting the same type of intensity. It's not getting the same type of feed of blood flow. So what implications or what are you finding in the rest of the body? And then I'm going to make the big jump, which, sorry, you're the first person to actually bring it up, is uh, males in space within a short period of time, I have heard immediately develop a sort of impotence because there's that lack of blood flow that goes to uh, the penis. So therefore, in space, we have challenges with, for example, the possibility of um, reproduction. We don't have to go into stimulation and all the tools I've been, somebody, this one guy was telling me about it, so we might have him on the program. Uh, but 
there's a biological side. So you could, you could cross over if you'd like, that's up to you. But those two questions, one is the whole body is beyond or below the heart. And then the second one is on the reproductive organs, are we finding an implication there too? Mm-hmm. I've got to believe you've thought about this. So <laughs> I'm asking the expert. Also, I'm not an expert in reproduction medicine, but let's let I try to answer um, as good as I can. So the in the rest of the body, um, so the artery adaptation is uh, mainly above the heart because that's where um, you get um, the volume load, where you get the higher pressure, what we are not used to. Right. Um, in the lower body, as you said, um, it's the opposite problem. Um, you have less load less volume that might cause trouble as well i think um for the lower part of the body the muscle atrophy and bone density are the most areas at the moment where the research is going to and because low pressure still enough in the lower body of course to perfuse you wouldn't um, get no perfusion and uh, cause organ damage that's probably why research in those areas is not advanced at the moment and for the reproduction, that might be a problem. Uh, we might need to get creative here. I'm not a deep um, meta expert for the reproduction medicine, especially in space, but um, that, uh, that could have long-term. Um, I, I plan on having somebody come in because I've had questions about this topic, but more mine was on the on the biological side of the blood flow side is that you need certain capabilities, for example, in digestion. You need certain capabilities in bowel movements. You need certain capabilities in the kidneys and the uh, lungs. And by taking that load off, the further away you get from the heart, Mm -hmm. most likely there is an implication that whether it's studied or not, that will eventually have to be explored. Oh yeah, and it is. And uh, in addition to that, David, is the problem you are on a special diet when you're in space. Um, So that your metabolic functions are changing in space. You can measure that, I think, when you measure um, liver values or kidney values. So it um, is altered. Again, the question is, is that now a good thing or a bad thing? Does it protect our body? Do we need it when we are in space or not? I think that is the hurdle for the scientific community to understand. Um, That comes back to, let's understand the problem, what's really going on, and then try to find out if it's protection and helpful, or like with the immune cells, the T cells, if we might want to think about um, counteracting um, in certain aspects. Okay, that sounds like a a progressive approach to it. Find out at first if it's a a reactionary, a second is if it's a, uh, it's it's an issue that we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Hadn't thought about it from that angle that this could just be a biological adaptive mechanism. Yes, and our body. I mean, look at evolution. We are able to adapt, so it could be an adaption mechanism that is beneficial. Um, I just don't know that for all of the changes. I think that's something that needs to be explored in detail. Okay, cool. I got it. Get it. It's cool. It, it raises a bunch of questions. Let's go on. Anything else with the heart as uh, resilience adapting and, or is, are we ready to go on to the next? 
think we should go on to the next. I could talk about immune cells and heart all day long, David. <laughs> well, any, anything that we, when we're going through, if, if there's something else that I should know, it, it's, and I'm speaking for the audience, but anything else that would be valuable for me to be able to get my mind around what's going on here could inspire uh, another idea that creates the ability to solve challenges on earth or in space. So anything that's valuable, throw it out there. I'd love to hear it. Awesome, okay. So we're on to three and anything else. So we've got the space flight is a model for aging. Yeah, so, um, and we covered um, parts of it now already. So space flight indeed is a model for aging. I had the example with the immune cells. Um, but you also have, for example, increased stress hormones when you're in space, you have insulin resistance. So everything you observe in an aged uh, patient population, um, you basically see imitated in space. We have those bone and muscle atrophies. So I think the most important here is again the immune system from my perspective, because it interacts with so many of our um, cells in the body. And I think it has some huge impact on aging in space. Um, the question why I bring it up here again is uh, having a little bit of deeper dive, why is microgravity a model for aging? I mean, we talked about the stress and um, all those kind of things, but there are also certain regulators in our body called microRNAs. And these uh, regulators are important for us for expression of genes and how our cells are functioning, and those get, dis let's call it disturbed. I'm not even sure if it's really disturbance, but let's call they get disturbed or they get changed in space flight. And these little regulators are playing not the only role, but a very important role uh, in space flight and why it is used in aging. So the signatures from those little molecules in space flight are quite similar to humans on Earth who are aged. So I find that fascinating that on the cellular level, microgravity and space flight affects our body system. It's not only volume shift, it's not a reaction only to more volume and more pressure. It is indeed also a cellular response of our body, of basically each cell in our body. And even so if I was to take two two people, two individual cells, like the Kellys we'll talk about later, but let's say I was to take two mm -hmm. and put them in two bottles mm -hmm. and I gave them to you and I said, take a look at these. Would you be able to say to me, David, this person has definitely been to space, not the same brothers or sisters, but I've just given you two different humans. And you'd say, no, no, this person has been to space. Can you identify that? You should be able. We have to keep in mind, David, that there are donor variances as well from human to human, of course. But the signature that has been identified now by multiple groups is quite um, identical. So you should be able to uh, say, yes, that person, this down regulation or up regulation, I have seen in other astronauts or in space flight studies. Um, so yeah, you should be oh, able to- Forensic studies or any type of biological studies would be able to come back and say, this person has cancer, this person has this, and this person has been to space. Oh, I see. Well, that only works, David, when you get the sample when that person is in space, because most of those changes go back to normal when you're back to Earth. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
So those little molecules, those little regulators in our body, um, they go back to, yeah, what is normal? That's a funny word. Um, they go back to a similar expression you had before. So it's reversible. Please change it's, it. So going to space and coming back mm -hmm. gives the ability to re, maybe regenerate. But did the person actually get older? Oh, that's really a great question. Um, so the immune system is older in space. Um, the studies, um, if it's reversible, are not done yet. So I don't know that answer to that. Um, I have seen other studies where those aging factors are reversible. So that is like what we talked about, this memory disturbance or the induced stress hormones, they come back to normal. So certain aspects of aging are indeed reversible when you come back to Earth. It might take a few days or weeks, but um, most of those changes go back to normal or before. So the, 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 there's, I guess, uh, the, the question at hand then, or two of them that I would be ex trying to research would be, if someone stays in space, how old and how fast do the, does it accelerate to the point of their life? And can we give an age to it? You know, you have been in space for four years. You are therefore, you're, you're 36 when you came here, but your body is now 51. Yeah. Um, for the chaotic changes we discussed earlier, um, if you're on long-term um, duration space flights, let's say a few months on the ISS, um, the chaotic artery aged 10 to 20 years. This is a number that is quite confirmed um, by several groups. It's not so confirmed for other factors we see related to aging. Uh, it's something we have to understand better. And you know, it's always hard to make those kind of statements because each human is different. Yep. We are all, um, so it's really hard to, you would need a cohort of like thousands of space travelers to really then be able to make those kind of statements. We don't have enough data, but the question oh. is still a viable question. Correct. Absolutely, David. Yes. So when you say spaceflight is a model for aging, mm -hmm. what does model for aging mean in your definition? So because um, in spaceflight, it's basically imitating aging, right? It's not um, on Earth when you age, the aging is different. It's caused by years, it's caused by exposure to antigens, etc. The reason why we are aging is different, the mechanism is different. So it's basically spaceflight is imitating um, um, changes in our body that we see in aging on Earth. It's not, I wouldn't necessarily say uh, we are all getting 20 years faster old in space or something. It's imitating, it's um, yeah, imitating the, the factors uh, we, we associate with aging. So we could, we could extrapolate that the longer you are in space, the odds of some of the exact same aging conditions mm -hmm. would occur had we had the data of individuals staying in space long enough. Yeah, that could be very possible. Yeah. Okay, so now I get it. When this is the model for aging, we're talking about the imitation of aging. So that means yeah. that if we kept someone up in space for 
five years, we could find that they have um, renal failure or they could have some type of failure that would not have occurred if they had just stayed on earth for another 25 years, yeah. potentially. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. And maybe what fits um, to that topic well is our number four with um, Scott Kelly. Uh, because what you see there um, is when Scott was in space like a year. Uh, let me just, for one moment, yeah. uh, just for the purposes of clarity, the two brothers, what happened, and then we can go into Scott Kelly. This is not, this is not, a, not everybody's going to know that name. Yeah. So the um, Kelly twins, um, the study is uh, a really exceptional study, in my opinion, because for the first time, Scott Kelly was um, sent to space. It was a year, so the longest US astronaut in space. And his twin brother, identical twin brother, Mark Kelly, stayed on Earth. And that gave us, for the first time, the possibility to compare in an identical twin study um, how space environments changes um, yeah, the body. And um, of course, it's not perfect, um, like almost no study is perfect. It's only an N of one, of course. It's one astronaut, Scott, on the ISS, and then one on Earth. But I think it gives you a very nice first idea what's going on and what we should look into it when we think about long-duration spaceflight. So what did we learn? So it was very interesting, uh, David, in the beginning, I found a lot of press releases where they said, oh, uh, the genes of Scott Kelly in space, they changed and they're not identical twins anymore. So that I wanted to discuss a little bit because um, the genes, so Scott and Mark, identical twins, they share the same uh, genetic information, the same genes, but what they don't share, and no identical twin is sharing it, is um, the expression of those genes, right? So if one of the um, of a twin um, gets, for example, an infection, the other one doesn't, you have already, although you have the same genes themselves, you have a yeah, different response of your body, you have a different expression pattern. And that is what happened in space with Scott Kelly. So lots of his genes, the expression uh, was either upregulated or downregulated differently from what Mark experienced on Earth, which is, I think, not surprisingly, because we talked a little bit about the microRNAs and what spice flight is doing on those little molecules, and they can regulate gene expression. So that was um, confirmed that space conditions changes expressions, but it doesn't necessarily, of course, change yourself, your genes, your um, Parity. Um, so that didn't happen. So Scott is still, of course, um, the identical twin from, um, from Mark. Um, but what was interesting when he came back is that more than 90% of those genes, the expression, returned to normal. And here again, what is normal? I mean, they returned to levels um, Scott had before, before he went on the space flight. So I found that quite um, exciting that uh, when you're back to Earth, um, they basically bounce back or they, they, they change to earth conditions again. They, and that brings me again to our point from earlier, maybe we need those changes in microgravity, right? Because the body obviously is able to make that unhappen or to rebound to the status before, before Scott went to the ISS. And, and I, I've, um, 
sometimes things pop into people's heads, that pops into mine. Could it be if someone has, I'm not going to call it conspiracy theory, but a, a alternative theories of where humans came from. Someone could argue, see, we have mechanisms to enable us to live in space. Maybe that did come from another species coming to Earth and repopulating the Earth. And whether that's science fiction or not, it's just one of those things that popped into my mind, is that could be someone saying, this is the case. Yeah, I mean, the teens, um, yeah, I see where you're coming from. That could be. Just an uh, interesting thought. You've got to agree. It's an interesting thought that maybe we, we have this built into us. Yeah, I mean, still, we would need oxygen and things like that to survive. But from the gene level, it's a very interesting thought. Yeah, uh, we are able to adapt the genes and the regulations. Yeah. Well, if, I, we, if we use that, let's, let's expand that thinking. If, uh, if humans came from biologically, as history and science has dictated, we came from the oceans, therefore, there are genes that, uh, genes that will allow us to do certain things that a water-bearing animal would be able to do, a water creature would do. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the analogy that I was taking is that there's, yeah, I mean, why not, right? I, I'm going to be quoted on this one day and then my life will be over and I'll be, I'll be quarantined to an island and they'll say, we do not want you around anymore. But I just took some jumps there. So the, uh, it'd be interesting if we can identify the genes that allow those things to happen. Yeah, interesting thought, David. I have to go deeper into that. I come back to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But these are, these are how ideas are founded. These are where a hypothesis is thrown out. Someone says, no, but there's a possible configuration alternative to that. And three generations later of, of discussion, someone says, well, there's a correlation between underwater and space. Yeah, I see that. I can see that. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> You're laughing at me, which I love even more. No, no. <laughs> You're laughing yeah. with me. You're laughing it's with fun. me. It's fun to think about it. Um, it's a very nice, challenging question, David. So you called it fingerprint. Mm -hmm. uh, you selected that word. Why did I, you then went yeah. to signature, but you use fingerprint? Why use fingerprint in, in your definition of the the topic? I want to share a um, um, thought process with you here um, about Scott and Mark. And it's nothing data show at the moment. It's just something I find very interesting in that context. And that's the fingerprint of Scott. So the fingerprint in our body means that our cells um, have a very distinguishable fingerprint that tells the immune system that is us, so self, or that is another person, non-self. and we know that from transplantation, if I get an organ from you, David, or you from me, um, that would be rejected because of that fingerprint. Our immune system knows that is a different person. With identical twins, it's different. They share the same fingerprint. So the question is now, it's maybe a little bit in parallel to your hypothesis from before. <laughs> so it's nothing, it's nothing confirmed. It's just a nice or interesting thought. Yeah. 
Um, so let's say Scott was now on the ISS for a year and uh, what we do know is um, what can happen are so-called mutations in our cells. And um, I'm interested in transplant immunology, so I think a lot about mutations because what happens is a mutation in a cell basically um, alters your fingerprint, meaning um, your cell looks now different to your body when you have a mutation. And mutations can happen when you have um, irritation, for example, or you take certain drugs. So, so mutations happen in biology, but they don't happen a lot, very rare. And what our immune system usually does is it recognizes the cells with now with the altered fingerprint and it elimin eliminates those cells because we think there is a different cell, we have to attack it, it's not ourselves. So with Scott and Mark, the question is, does have Scott mutations on the ISS, what could happen because of, of course, the harsh environment, the stress, the radiation, and so on. What would happen, um, not only to Scott, but what would happen if Scott returns to Earth? Could you still do a transplantation between Scott or Mark? Or is the fingerprint from Scott now altered? That basically, from the fingerprint perspective, the mutations, the antigens that are presented, um, Mark's immune system would think it's a different person. So it's, that's a, it's a foreign entity, yes. Yeah, and that's something completely uh, not proved by any of the data. So just something, mm -hmm. how, I'm trying to figure this out, how would you do the experiment? So what you could do is um, understanding from Scott if he developed mutation, and that is basically the hard part because each cell in his body could develop mutations. And if it's only one cell, his body probably clears them on the ISS. That's usually how it um, works in our body. The question is only if you have a lot of mutation, will some of cell types survive with that mutation um, or not? That's the question I don't know. So you can investigate it, for example, by getting um, either cell samples or blood samples from Scott, screen for mutation development, and then understand if the immune system of Mark reacts to that. So you, all you have to do is incubating the samples from Scott with Mark's immune cells mm -hmm. and understand if there is a reaction or activation against it. So you're, you're taking a biological from one, a mm -hmm. biological from another, Mm -hmm. putting them in an experimental condition and watching mm -hmm. how they react. Correct. And if we would do it, you and me, we would reject. If Mark and Scott... I don't know. I think it would say, <laughs> I like Sonia. We're going to be nice to her. And it's a, I don't know why you would go so far as to say I'd reject you. You think our finger wings are compared? I, I think <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm half German. So I, maybe, maybe there's something there. <laughs> Yeah, nice thinking. Um, yeah, and and Scott and Mark they shouldn't reject. They should right. They shouldn't reject. It should not be. It should not be a standard deviation far enough away that yeah. the body reacts and says this is no. Yet there probably is some complexity of decision making within the body to say wait 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 wait. This is us, but it's not us. Mm -hmm. And within a, a microsecond, it could be but organically some decision-making is made within the cell that says this is not us, but it's close enough. So therefore we'll accept it. That could happen. Yes, that could happen. 
we don't know. So that's why um, I think the Scott and Mark Kelly experiment is super fascinating. And I think we'll, there are enough samples will probably um, occupy the scientific community for a while to really understand all those fascinating questions. And we got to keep, we've got to keep the scientific community busy because obviously I'm going to reject you or you're going to reject me. So yeah. we need to give you something that you won't be rejected from. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, if let's go, uh, I guess, is there anything else with the Kelly twins? No, I think we can move on, David. Okay. The last one was, why is space research important when we have restricted funds on Earth? Yeah. So in science, of course, everyone is restricted, right? With grant money, it's very expensive. I always see it the way like we're not really bringing in any money. We are using money to understand problems and so on. However, um, the space flight biology and medicine, and I hope some of the topics we discussed today made that clear, is extremely important because um, you don't want to think inside the box. But with space medicine, you can also um, think like there is no box at all, right? It's not even thinking outside the box, like you try to do it in science. It's really there is no box. The space and the orbit is that gives us those opportunities to study in vivo, so in organisms, um, regulations, aging, harsh conditions, adaption. So I think um, you always get, of course, the questions shouldn't we focus on earth science. I think the clear answer is really we shouldn't. We should, in addition, be able to explore space, to understand what's going on, and then really trying to solve it. But I think the first step for us is really understanding what's going on and thinking about mechanisms thinking about how can we help humanity. Okay, so I'm gonna push you here. Yeah. Uh, first, uh, a simple question. You won't have any challenge with this. Is there a discipline yet called space medicine? Yeah, there are disciplines at some universities like uh, UCSF does have a space medicine um, how do you call it, space medicine course or discipline. There are space medicine, even space surgery disciplines, not enough in my opinion, but um, they are existing, yes. Okay, that's uh, just something I didn't know and mm -hmm. okay. So can you take, doesn't have to be from what you've given, obviously you've got plenty, I'm not obviously, I'm, a, I'm making an assumption that you have some examples where we have been successful taking space research in this field or fields close to biology and being able to use it on earth one two or three examples so that i can really get my mind around and i, I think in the the video the macedonia video i talked about how we don't even understand how many implications or how many types of innovations that were used with paradigm shift thinking that we were in space like you just said there is no box you looked at it differently and we don't know as, as uh, not we, I would say that the general population does not know how many types of innovations have impacted Earth in many ways. One that I always bring up is the boots on a plane that stops snow and ice from building up is a space technology. If you see a firefighter run into a building, 
that firefighter, uh, the outfit they wear came from space and so did the tank on the back to be able to hold the oxygen, which is you'll see used for acetylene and other types of disciplines. So what I'd like to do is identify and be able for my mind to have some other examples to say, no, 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 no. This did this, this did this, and this did this. So do you have any examples of that? I do. Um, they are not as advanced as, for example, your um, fireman examples, because I think biologic um, research is a little bit behind of like um, material, materials that were developed and so on. But um, one example is understanding osteoporosis, right? Um, it's a huge impact on our society that you have that loss of bone density and uh, you don't have this balance of bone regeneration and bone loss anymore. And that um, has been in early days um, seen in astronauts. It has been understood um, where the problem is with the balance of um, providing new osteoblasts and osteocytes and also uh, be able to uh, eliminate the old ones. So um, there are medications and uh, I'm blanking on specific names, but basically the osteoporosis research, some of those are based on lessons we learned, the community learned from space flight. Cool. Um, another example is what we discussed today, but it's very early in the development, is this arterial stiffness, the prevention we talked about, maybe it's not beneficial um, in space for the astronauts, but it might be beneficial for, for us on Earth. So patients who do have that same problem are patients um, lying for a very long time, like for example, on the ICU for many weeks. So um, if you understand the mechanism, which is now quite well understood, um, you can simply design the truck to stop that um, mechanism and to prevent that from happening for patients on Earth. It's not a truck, I can now give you the name and it works, it's confirmed in patients, but it is, shows you that um, this early research is using the space flight data to improve medicine and also the health of our patients on Earth. Do you have any others? And I'm, I'm pushing you just because yeah, I, I think I'd be um, I'm, you need, I need a sip of my Coke mix here. One sure, sure. <laughs> what did you call that again that you were having? Spitzy. Spitzy, yes. Spitzy. And a, a Coke and orange de soda, was that? Yeah, correct, correct. Um, it's a Bavarian drink, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, but you know, I can tell you it doesn't help. Um, <laughs> So let me think. I mean, you're really looking for concrete. Um, well, no, it doesn't have to be a complete uh, solution because potentially the construct or the hypothesis f was an initiator for another ideation that solved. I think the challenge that I one of the reasons for Project Moonhut is, or one of the definitions is we take those paradigm shifting thinking mm -hmm. and those innovations that are used in space and they transform how we live on earth. So someone could have been in a lab and said, we're going to be in microgravity. We're going to do the following. We're going to do the following. And then said, worked on it for a year or a month, whatever the number may be. Mm -hmm. And then said, oh, this is not going to work. However, I just found out how to make super glue. 
So they didn't actually ever even go into space. They didn't even travel to the, they just realized that their hypothesis was wrong, but that innovation, that thinking differently altered something that is used every day on earth. So I'm just, I'm searching for examples because once we see that there's even more of a reason for space to be, Yeah. we look for such direct correlations and we don't need them. Something you did when you were, I've got to believe, Sonia, when you were eight years old or 10 years old, you, were, you might have skinned your knee, you might have had something happen, and you said, I want to study this. You didn't <laughs> study the skinning of your knee. You studied T cells. Yeah. Yeah. So one example maybe, David, here is um, the kind of new field of regenerative medicine. So for that, um, on Earth, um, scientists really try to generate stem cells that are pluripotent. That is a certain population of stem cells, not the stem cells we talked before about. But these stem cells are able to, to become any cell type in your body, meaning that is very attractive because then you could use them to and transplant them to uh, heal organs, any kind of organs, the heart, the liver, whatever. So the issue here is it's really hard to scale this production of those pluripotent stem cells up on earth because of gravity. Um, because those stem cells, um, the field found, love to float around, for example, to stay pluripotent, to stay in that state where they expand infinity, in infinity. So basically um, those stem cells they divide forever. That's what um, the definition of those pluripotent stem cells is. Um, and I think, I'm not sure if it was by accident or by, um, uh, colleagues have found out that in microgravity, when they thought about it, um, the cell cultures didn't like microgravity because they would start to float and clump. But it turns out for those pluripotent stem cells, it's exactly the condition we want to have to keep them happy, to expand them, to scale them up, that we have them available for kind of each patient. So that might be an application by coincident incidents where spaceflight condition or um, the MIRTH project um, enables a production of a cell line that is much easier to do on, on the moon, for example, on microgravity than it is on Earth. So, so we would we could create an industry yeah. of production in microgravity yeah. or between in the Project Moon classification system between mm -hmm. three and eight, which is um, low Earth orbit all the way to the moon, where we could be producing these cells and then bring them back to Earth. Correct. That would be and, an example. Yeah. And you do know that you use the word infinity with the age of infinite. So I knew you, I know you did that intentionally. <laughs> well, actually, no, that must have been the Coke mix. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's the Coke side of it. Yeah. I'm wondering. Uh, okay. So that's a great one. That's that's actually a, a fantastic application because what you the first two you did is it was earth, it was space to earth. Mm -hmm. And what you just did was Earth to space. Correct. That is true. Yeah, I realize that now that you're saying it. Yeah. 
and, and that's the the mirth construct is that we we live in earth we we've all known our whole lives that we live in this ecosystem which mm-hmm. is earth and we've expanded to low earth orbit to some degree but now what we're saying is we really live in the ecosystem of mirth moon and earth and everything in between gives us infinite possibilities and infinite resources and you just you just said infinite productivity infinite possibilities with the ability to manufacture within this new construct of the mirth environment so it's perfect perfect awesome. i should Thank pay you for that but i won't i let you know my account number <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so is, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Is there any other things on top of mind that you feel would be valuable for me to understand that ties into space conditions of all creatures ex- age extremely fast? No, I think, David, we covered really a lot. Um, I think I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, it was awesome. Good, good. I, I This was a fantastic uh, the individuals who are listening to the podcast series do not realize because they don't get the instructions that I sit with a blank piece of paper. I do not know your outline. I do not know your content. We create a title and then you take me on a journey and you have taken me on a fantastic journey. One that I had not even thought of going in. And so that's the, that's the value of having people like yourself who've got unbelievable wisdom in these areas that can share. And so I appreciate it. I uh, appreciate you taking the time and being with me and with us to, to give direction. So this was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, David. It was a pleasure. So uh, I'd like to thank everybody out there who took the time to listen in. And I do hope that you learned something today that will make a difference in your life, in your future, in the lives of others as we step into this age of infinite, this age of possibilities. And again, Project Moon Hut is a... Uh, a directive. It's going on six years now and we're working on and we're hard. We've got people all over the world who are helping us in all different ways. Just spent two hours talking about big data and tokenization and governance this morning with somebody else is that we're looking to establish this, uh, a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a, a moon hut. We don't pick the winners. We don't design how it will be. What we're doing is giving you, the listener, the ability to think differently, to see this unbelievable potential. And then we take those endeavors by just trying to get to the moon, to try to be on the moon. There's, as I'm going to use Elon Musk, he said there were hundreds of over 100,000 people who put two people up into space this week. Over 100,000. Well, all of those individuals who are engaged in doing something to get us into space, to rethink, to paradigm shift, those ideas will turn back on Earth and they will improve how we live on Earth for all species. And that's what Project Moon Hut is about and the Project Moon Hut Foundation. So I'm hoping that you got that value. Uh, Sonia, is there a single best way to connect with you? Yeah, David, I think the email would be the best. Um, It's my first name, Sonia, S-O-N-J-A, and then dot, last name, Schwepfer. I think I should probably spell that. I think you should. <laughs> you say it better than I do, by the way. <laughs> it's um, S-C-H-R-E-P-F-E-R. And then at ucsf.edu. Oh, uh, again, thank you very much. Uh, 
if you'd like to connect with me, you can connect with me at david at projectmoonhut.org. You can go to at Project Moon Hut on Twitter. We now have a new, just put up, we haven't marketed for six years, we've been working, but there are two videos on YouTube under Project Moon Hut. You can just search for us. And there's our logo, Project Moon Hut, so you'll see that. If you wanna connect with me directly, you can connect to me on LinkedIn or Facebook or even on Instagram. I have Mr. David Goldsmith, somebody else gave that. So there's many ways to get a hold of us. We'd love to have your participation. Uh, once again, thank you for taking the time. So I'm David Goldsmith, and thank you for listening.